enormous amount of time, money, effort, and good intentions goes into scientific research. But all too often, the results aren't effectively communicated. The goal of Beyond the Jargon is to make academic research more accessible to a wider audience. I'm Dr. Karen Albright. I hope you'll join me for a series of conversations designed to translate scientific research and to explore from a data-driven perspective the impacts of child abuse on our psychological, family, healthcare, criminal justice, and social systems. Come with me, Beyond the Jargon. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host, Karen Albright, and with me today is Sarah Bayless. Sarah is a uh, vice president at the Omni Institute, which is a nonprofit social science consultancy that's headquartered in Denver, Colorado. And at Omni, Sarah oversees applied research and evaluation projects that focus on supporting children and families and promoting economic security for all. Sarah has a PhD in applied developmental psychology from Fordham University, and she's completed a postdoctoral research fellowship at Arizona State University. We're so happy to have her here. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much, Karen. I'd love to start our discussion today by letting our audience get to know you a little bit, you know, the person behind the science. And I'd also like to learn a little bit more from you about the Omni Institute. So what can you tell us about Omni? Yeah, so I joined Omni about Omni Institute about seven years ago, and I feel really lucky to have found this professional home. For as long as I can remember, service has been really important to me. I've always felt this desire to do whatever small thing I can to make the world a slightly better place, you know, whether that's for my family or my friends or my larger community. My mom's a preschool teacher. And when I got to college, I really thought I would go into some kind of direct service career, like a teacher or a guidance counselor or a social worker. But while I was taking child development and psychology classes in college, I, I also fell in love with social science. And this whole new world opened up for me, you know, the process of forming questions and collecting data and using statistics and models to then answer that question that no one has ever done before. It was, it was really thrilling for me. And so I found myself both wanting to pursue that passion for social science and also still felt this call to service. And I was lucky to have a few really great mentors who sent me in the right direction. And I ended up getting a PhD in applied developmental psychology, which is, I think, worth talking about for a moment. It's a field that's really focused on both using what we know from basic science about how people grow and thrive and struggle and persist throughout their lives, and using social science methods to understand how growth and struggles are shaped by the environments in which we live. And mm. if we have this knowledge, we can then think about how do we create environments and programs and interventions that help people really live their best lives. So after my PhD and then after a postdoctoral fellowship, I was I was looking for the right place to use all of these social science skills that I had gained and was also looking for a job where I could see as clearly as possible for myself the line between what I was doing and how I was making an impact in the world around me. You know, so much of our traditional social science work is stuck inside that ivory tower. So our findings and our learnings are published in journals that uphold the rigor of our work, but make it really hard for that knowledge to permeate into communities or to be directly applied to people's lives. And I knew that for myself, I wanted to be outside that tower professionally. And that's when I found Omni Institute and why it's it's such a good fit. Did you come uh, to Omni straight from your postdoctoral work in Arizona? 
I did. Yes. So I had actually moved to Denver, Colorado, which is where we're headquartered and had been doing uh, my postdoctoral work remotely and uh, looking out into the community, trying to find a place that, you know, was, had that values fit as well as would allow me to use my social science training. And I found Omni Institute and I'm really glad that I did. That's awesome to hear. I know it's it's an interesting moment, I think, uh, in in as people build their careers, it's an interesting moment because a lot of people now don't want to be inside the ivory tower or at least trapped uh, in the ivory tower, right? And so it's so cool that there are places like Omni and other research and evaluation oriented institutes where you can do really good research, uh, social scientific or otherwise research, and and yet also feel like you're I don't know what embedded in the real world. You can you're yeah. out and and uh, engaged in things that that matter. It's sort of a nice straddling of a lot of different interests. It sounds like that you have. Yeah, and what's so interesting is you know I I had this vision for what the work could look like, but I really didn't understand what that model looked like and what a social science consultancy was and how that you know line of work existed and in the world. And so when I found Omni, there were just a lot of pieces that clicked for me and a lot of aha moments along the way. Omni's mission is to accelerate positive social change towards a more equitable society. And so as a social science consultancy, you know, we do that through integrated research, evaluation, and capacity building services. So what that really means is that we partner with anyone that's in the business of doing good, if you will. So these are direct service organizations and other nonprofits, foundations, state and federal agencies. And we bring social science methods that can answer questions like what's working well and how and what can we do better and how. So it's that way of using social science methods, but also for me, seeing that direct connection into community. I love that. I want a job at Omni based on that. <laughs> that sounds pretty great. How could we Come do that? Come on down. We'd love to have you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the resident podcaster. How about that? What's also really interesting about our work at Omni is that we work across a variety of areas. So, you know, we have experts in behavioral health, in community health, in justice, in children and families, and in economic so- security. My work is really centered in children and families and economic security, but We also know that our most pressing issues in society really sit at the intersection of all of these areas. So part of a community's health is driven by the economic security that people experience within that community. And when families experience economic insecurity, it impacts how children can grow and thrive. And so by having this interdisciplinary perspective, we can really get at root causes and issues in a way that I think is um, pretty unique in our field. I'd say so. Yeah, that sounds like a really uh, great opportunity. And one of the questions I, I wanted to hear from you or clarify from you is about the degree to which you all focus on children. You know, this is uh, most of this podcast is devoted to understanding the effects of child trauma and uh, and the processes and the implications of it and so on. And But you may have just given a hint, I think, in your answer, and that is, it sounds like you focus a lot on families, right? So obviously children are often embedded in families. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, hearkening back to my academic days, you know, models of how we think about all the things that impact children, it's their families, it's the communities that those families live in, the school systems that they go to, the justice systems that are in place, the resources that are available. And so there are certainly aspects of our work that look at directly the impacts that programs or interventions or 
you know, initiatives are having on children, but um, often through the lens of all of the different communities and contexts in which those children are living and growing and thriving. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, again, I know you all do this incredible work. And to to me, one of the most interesting recent projects that you've worked on has to do with examining the return on investment to local child welfare systems by investing in, what is it, family resource centers. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Tell our listeners uh, a little bit more about that. I'd love to to hear some details like what what is a family resource center? Yes, uh, let's start there because that is a big question in and of itself. Family resource centers are a model that's used across the United States, and they're really um, welcoming hubs of support, services, social connection, and opportunities for families. So fundamentally, they use a strengths-based, family-centered, and um, typically multi-generational approach to support families in whatever ways that families are looking for support. One of the really interesting things about family resource centers is that because they're designed to reflect local contexts and needs, each one looks and feels a little bit different. So a family resource center in New Hampshire, for example, won't be exactly the same as a family resource center in Kentucky or California. Um, and at the same time, a family resource center in the Denver metro region will look very different than a family resource center in rural Colorado. But to give you a little bit of a sense of what they generally look and feel like, you know, services range from basic needs, so services like food pantries and utility assistance, to parenting classes, peer support, family development, leadership development, and a whole lot more that I could never capture in, in a single list. But ultimately, centers meet families where they are, help them build on their strengths, and then connect them into resources so that they can sustainably meet their needs. I was recently talking to someone who said that when she's telling families about the local family resource center that she has in her community, she explains it as the, quote, Walmart of meeting family needs. So whatever your family needs, the family resource center has it or can find it for you. Wow. Uh, and I thought that was a very approachable way of explaining this relatively complex and uh, heterogeneous group of centers. Absolutely. And how are they funded? Who, who's supporting them? Um, they use a variety, so similar to the ways in which they operate in communities, they also are funded through a variety of um, mechanisms. So that includes um, state and federal funding, as well as private philanthropy, individual donations, fundraising, that kind of thing. So it's a pretty blended model, and that can vary, again, from community to community and from state to state across the U.S. Got it. Okay. That that's well, that sounds like a great concept, a great idea. And it sounds like, you know, an opportunity for a lot of good work to uh to be done. And by the way, I really liked I think how you described Omni a few minutes ago. Uh they they like to partner with people who people or organizations that do good work. I think that's uh what a great operating idea and concept. So why should we care about examining return to investment? And what does that mean in this case? Yes. So Social return on investment is an approach that takes, you know, what we think of as a, quote, traditional social science outcome. So like in this case, for example, child maltreatment, and it translates it into a financial outcome. So literally dollars and cents. And in this case, in this research, we were considering whether the model of family resource centers could lead to a reduction in child maltreatment in a community that would in turn reduce the amount of money that that community spends because of child maltreatment. And I think the concept of social return on investment is really powerful for the field of research and evaluation in general, and also for the 
um, our understanding of family support services. But the main one is that, you know, we, we live in a world of limited resources. And the reality is that policymakers and funders make decisions on a daily basis about how we use and allocate those resources. So if we know that by investing in a particular program or intervention or approach over here can help families in a way that creates efficiencies by saving money over there, policymakers and funders may then be able to make better informed decisions about how to allocate resources effectively in a way that is supporting communities, in a way that's supporting families and their children. And the other thing I think about when I think about social return on investment, talking in terms of dollars and cents can feel really cold, you know, translating the lack of child maltreatment or the instance of child maltreatment into dollars and cents can feel like we're taking the humanity out of it. But it can also reach a, a different or potentially broader audience than our social science work might otherwise. You know, everyone is inherently familiar with this unit of measurement of dollars and cents, which makes it really approachable for people. And it it also offers a standardization that I think can be hard to come by otherwise in social science. Sarah, I love the way that you just explained that and the fact that you addressed that head on. I think that that is something that often people have a almost visceral reaction to sometimes to talk about in terms of cost benefit, essentially, or, you know, dollars and cents, as you're saying, around phenomena that are complicated, deeply human and yeah. and feel very, you know, there's a lot of emotions attached to to these concepts and experiences, understandably. But you're absolutely right that we have to talk in this way. We have to understand how to measure and quantify to some degree, at least the financial part of this, because otherwise policymakers are just not going to have a, a way to account for it, uh, to to put money toward it. And it's just not going to be able to be factored appropriately, you know, uh, interventions and, and so on. Anyway, so Sarah, ultimately then, what did you learn from the study that you did? What, what can you tell us about return to investment around the family? Family resource centers. Yeah. So before I share the main findings, the punchline, if you will, um, I want to share a little bit about the context of the research because it, it is so important to understanding what we found. So the study I'm talking about today was based in Teller County, Colorado. And Teller County is a is in central Colorado. So it's in the Rocky Mountains. And it has a population of about 25,000 people over 550 square miles. So we're talking about a relatively rural community. And Teller County has one family resource center in it that serves the entire county. Its full name is the Community Partnerships Family Resource Center. I'm going to call it CPFRC so that you don't have to listen to me say that every single (laughs) time. But CPFRC was established in 1992. So it has a long history of supporting families in Teller County with a variety of wraparound services and referrals to other resources in the community. So, you know, they they have this history and they've been operating under this family-centered, responsive, whole family approach that's really central to the ethos of family resource centers since really 1992. And in 2016, there was something of a step change for the organization in terms of how they were able to support families across the county. So in that year, CPFRC started providing a program that's called Colorado Community Response. And this is a program designed to support families who are initially referred to the child welfare system for child abuse or neglect, but are screened out either initially or screened out from receiving services. And for these families, the Colorado Community Response Program allows the local child welfare system to make a referral directly to CPFRC, who then provide wraparound services to support the family if the family is interested in that. 
So they do things like making connections to other resources, helping them access financial assistance, offering a variety of support services that are ultimately aimed at increasing their strengths and, and improving parental knowledge. In that same year, CPFRC also received additional funding from the state of Colorado to expand what's called family development services. Now, this is a voluntary set of services available to any family in the community, regardless of their involvement or not in the child welfare system. And through it, families set and work towards goals that they've set for themselves to build on strengths and increase protective factors for children's safety, as well as other aspects of family stability. So fundamentally, in 2016, there was this step change in how the Family Resource Center was supporting families in a way that we hypothesized would reduce families' involvement in the child welfare system. So ultimately reduce instances of child abuse and neglect in huh. Teller County. And the goal with this research was first to see whether we in fact saw this expected reduction in child abuse and neglect, and then to see if the investment in these prevention and early intervention models through the Family Resource Center were more cost efficient than intervening once child maltreatment had occurred. And so if the prevention and early intervention models helped reduce family involvement in the child welfare system and cost less than later involvement by the child welfare system, then we would see a positive return on investment. And that is, in fact, what we found. So our wow. results showed that for, yeah, exactly. For every $1 invested in CPFRC, the Teller County child welfare system saved an estimated $2.92 in 2018. So there was wow. ultimately a measurable economic benefit of the community resource center to the child welfare system. That's incredible. Those seem like really robust findings to me. I mean, the uh, the fact, so ever, let me just repeat that. For every $1, then there was a savings of $2. And two, did you say two and change or what did two, you say? Yes, $2.92. Yeah. So just shy of $3. Wow. That's incredible. That's an incredible return on investment. I think anybody would be uh, pleased to have that kind of return on investment for anything. That's, yeah. Absolutely. And then you said that's $2,018, right? 2018. Yes. Yeah, so that yeah. is looking um, at $2,018 based on um, uh, findings from 2018. And I can talk about that a little bit more when we get to the methodology. Um, but that is based in 2018. Well, that's pretty, uh, pretty solid. Why don't we talk a little bit about that, uh, those methods, right? Since, since you mentioned that now, that's, you know, how did you come to the findings? What did you do? What, did, what approach did you all take to getting those results? So as I've been talking about, this study was conducted in one specific community, Teller County, Colorado, and it looked at the social return on investment for one particular family resource center. And so we took this case study approach for a few different reasons. So first, as I mentioned, earlier, every family resource center is a little bit different um, because they're responsive to their communities, the particular types of programs and support they offer to families differ. And this was also the first study that we knew about to look at social return on investment to the child welfare system in particular. So we wanted to really make sure that we could account for as many different potential confounding factors as possible. Confounding factors being things that we couldn't control in the research design that mm. might unknowingly skew or impact our results in a way that we don't want to have happen. So the case study approach was really the best way to manage all of those different factors. I love that explanation there. I think people sometimes hear the terms confounding or terms like that and wonder what that means. But I appreciate your, not only your explanation, but also the, it sounds like uh, the thoughtfulness you took to try to quiet some of that noise. 
I love the framing of quieting that noise. That's a really nice way of thinking about it. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm a mother, so maybe that's why, uh, why, I'm, why I'm doing that. Just quiet that noise, kid. Yeah. Anyway. Well, and it's certainly, you know, it's quieting the noise, not eliminating the noise. Um, sure. One of the realities of doing applied work like this is that there will always be noise in our models. And I'll, I'll talk about that more in detail in a moment. But we wanted to quiet that noise as much as possible and also acknowledge that there will be some noise in there just by virtue of the fact that we are looking at the real experiences of people being served by a real family resource center. Yeah, no, I, and I, I think that's a very appropriate way to look at that. I mean, in real life, and this is what applied work is all about, right? It's not theoretical models out there. In real life, you you're the noise is never gone. Real life is full of things that you know impact your results or your experience, no matter what we do. And so I appreciate you being thoughtful about taking those into account or try to manage them as best you can, knowing you can't eliminate them. Tell us a little bit more about what you uh, what you all did. Yeah. So we used a social return on investment model that comes originally from the New Economics Foundation. And we actually took a pretty conservative approach, I would say, to implementing this model. And what I mean by conservative is that you know, relative to the larger field of social return on investment, we took a pretty narrow view of the outcomes that we attached monetary value to. So for example, in a world where we are thinking about what is the value of preventing child abuse and neglect, there's a lot of really good research out there that shows that experiencing child abuse and neglect and family involvement in the child welfare system has long-term negative effects for children and their families. One of the references that I always talk about is a 2019 report by a group called Safe and Sound in California. And they estimated that the lifetime cost of a single case of child maltreatment in that state is $268,544. And that estimate includes costs related to healthcare and education and productivity losses and all kinds of other things. Did you say that was um, over the course of a child's lifetime? Yes, that's a, over the course of a lifetime for a single case of child maltreatment. Wow. Oh, uh, wow. All right. That's a pretty shocking number. It Horrifying. is. And- and we also know that there's a, a quote unquote cost to well-being from the trauma of these experiences. So that that humanization that we were talking about earlier. And so some social return on investment models aim to quantify those types of costs or that type of trauma in terms of dollars and cents. Now, we didn't do any of that here. We only looked at direct costs to the local child welfare system, and we defined that by the amount of money that they spend, that the system spends, when there's a substantiated case of child maltreatment. So that conservative consideration just means that we took a relatively narrow look at the costs associated with this phenomenon. Got it. Okay. That, that, uh, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. That's, that's interesting to think about the choices that you have to make. You know, I think, uh, you may know, hopefully our audience, uh, knows at this point, but one of the things that I most want people to take away from this podcast is to understand the implications of the choices that people, researchers make in terms of the different methods that they choose, right? So, you know, by focusing in this way, you know, this, there's pros and cons to this, uh, you know, and, and so, and everything in research is a series of choices. And so I appreciate that you are clarifying what choices you, you made and why. And so did you find that the results, I mean, it sounds like pretty robust results. Did you find that it was a pretty straightforward path to what you ultimately found? 
Yes. So with that framework of substantiated cases of child maltreatment or instances where there is evidence of child maltreatment and the child welfare system intervenes, in Teller County, what we did first was we estimated the reduction in child maltreatment cases from 2015 to 2018. So that's the time period before and after they expanded the programming that I was talking about earlier uh-huh, and uh-huh. at preventing child maltreatment. And after adjusting for population changes over that same time period, we estimated that in 2018, there were 51 fewer cases of child maltreatment in Teller County mm-hmm. as compared to 2015. So that's notable in and of itself, right? 51 fewer cases, estimated cases of child maltreatment in the county. And then our process was, okay, so how do we now attach dollars and cents to that? And so we use child welfare data to estimate that the local cost of a substantiated case of child maltreatment in 2018 was just over $49,000. So for every case of child maltreatment in 2018, Teller County spent about $49,000 which means that if those 51 cases of child maltreatment had happened in Teller County, it would have cost roughly two and a half million dollars. So finally, so we had that two and a half million dollars. And the last step in this process was to compare that number to the total cost of running CPFRC. And so in 2018, CPFRC's annual expenses were just over $850,000. And we took the entirety of their annual expenses, you know, as opposed to the expenses specifically for the programs that I talked about earlier, because this better aligns with how family resource centers operate. Once a family is connected in, they're often receiving supports across a variety of different programs, because it's not about enrollment in any one program, it's about meeting a family's needs. And so we took all those costs together. We compared that two and a half million dollars, the cost of the 51 cases of child maltreatment, and the ratio works out to 292%. So that gives us that final estimate for the return on investment. For every $1 invested in CPFRC, Teller County saved $2.92 in child welfare costs. Yeah, so impressive to hear how you approach that. And and also really powerful to kind of start to grapple with the meaning of that. From that, what do you take in terms of conclusions or implications? You know, how how does it contribute from your perspective? How does it contribute to our knowledge about child abuse and neglect? So to me, this work is really exciting for a few reasons. You know, I think social return on investment is a real generally a really powerful method or model for making research methods relevant to folks outside of academia, as we were just talking about. And that's part of why I was so thrilled. I'm so thrilled to join you on this podcast because this work is really about making research more accessible to a wider audience. But what we also know is that this research is a starting place. You know, we saw this positive return on investment in this particular case study. We also replicated it in a similar approach in California. So we actually do now have two case studies where we're seeing positive returns. But nonetheless, two case studies is a relatively limited body of knowledge. And so, of course, we want to explore opportunities for both replicating and building upon the work. So we see this as really a starting place to inform the field, to give really solid evidence and approachable evidence to decision makers, funders, policymakers, and as a place where we can start to build the field to better understand in different communities across the United States or in at a state level, how do those positive return on investment show up or do they show up at all when we start to look at Um, different communities in different contexts. 
Yeah. And I, I appreciate so much this gem, it sounds like, you know, of, uh, of these findings, like this, it's so powerful. I mean, almost $3 to everyone spent. It's so powerful. And yet one of the things about research that's very frustrating to me and others, probably you as well, is that often these really powerful bits of data are out there and they aren't often either disseminated effectively, or they don't actually ultimately translate to the action that they probably should translate into because, well, for a variety of reasons, really. And so I appreciate that you want to, in addition to, you know, you're publishing this work and you're also, of course, coming on this podcast to share news about it. But what are some other things that you think might be helpful to move the needle on this in terms of reaching policymakers and or inciting them to action ar around this? Because it seems pretty clear. It's not, this is not a wishy-washy finding. This is pretty powerful stuff. So what do you think can be done? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the more gratifying parts of doing this work for me personally is, you know, I've heard from many different folks that they use this research and they talk about this, these findings in their daily professional lives. So CPFRC has used these findings to talk in their own community about the importance and value. Other family resource centers are able to leverage it to say, this is the model that we use and here are findings that we've seen over there. The National Family Support Network, who was a key partner in conducting this research, they are the member uh, network for state networks of family resource centers across the country. They were really integral in both identifying the need for this research to the field, as well as actually helping us conduct it in an um, appropriate and rigorous way. And they talk about this work when they are talking to policymakers and advocates and, um, you know, in lots of different places that they're navigating to say, to both educate people on this is what family resource centers are, um, as well as this is the effect that they can have in communities. And so I think I see my role as a researcher in both creating this body of knowledge and then making sure that it does get into the hands of those who are really well positioned to move the needle in their communities. And I think one, by doing it in partnership with the folks who have those networks and who who have those roles as central to their work is an invaluable part of this. Well, I love that, Sarah. And I hope uh, that among our listeners out there are other people who are invested in the same idea and uh, can maybe help move that needle forward. I think it's a very much a collective effort of all of us to be able to push good work uh, forward, get it out there, communicate it and, and advocate for change. And uh, I, so I so respect and am impressed by the work that you and Omni are doing. I love that among other things, this study and, and similar ones are really emphasizing how important it is to support families so that they can function optimally. Child trauma and neglect and abuse can be minimized, if not, you know, ideally completely eliminated, but, you know, just how important it is to, to support the family unit, especially in these many troubled times that we live in. So it's maybe more important now than ever. Uh, thank you so much for your work, Sarah, and for being a guest on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. And honestly, I could talk with you for another several hours. I, I feel like <laughs> you have lots, lots of interesting stuff, but thanks for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Karen. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this work and um, hope your listeners have found it to be interesting and informative. Great. And how could they get in touch with, uh, with Omni if they want to learn more about this or any of the other work that you all are doing right now? Absolutely. I think the easiest way would be just to go to www.omni.org and there is a contact us page there. Uh, you can also see more about the work that we do 
Um, this work is highlighted on our website as well as the work we do across all of uh, lots of other spaces. So um, that's the best place to find us and my contact information is there as well. Perfect. All right, Sarah, thank you so much.